Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Anthony Lowe. Anthony is the CEO and Managing Director of Tapestry Care UK Limited, a social care provider based right here in Hornchurch, Greater London. Anthony, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Good morning, Scott, and uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to having a chat. It's a real pleasure having you on the air with us, Anthony. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in first and foremost and just look at that word leader for a moment, what does that word mean to you and how does it resonate? It means taking decisions, often hard decisions, and particularly during this COVID crisis, it's meant our decision. So for me, yeah, so someone, the, the leader of an organisation has to look at the situation and make a decision that's going to be, in my case, best for the people I care for, but also, in this case with COVID, um, a, a decision that means the organisation will actually survive and continue. It's really putting leadership to the test at the moment, isn't it? The COVID-19 crisis um, and business leaders having to really feel their way through this um, uncharted territory. And I can imagine for someone working within the uh, the care sector, such as yourself, the challenges are completely unprecedented. Um, for yourselves, how has it been sort of adapting to meet this current crisis? Because I can imagine the challenges have been tremendous. Yeah, the, the challenge, Scott, the challenges have been huge, yeah. Um, overnight, well not overnight, it was over a period of a week, um, we care for people um, in our community hubs, wellbeing centres, where people come to our centres and we provide them with the, the, the preventional, preventative care and support that they need as individuals um, to tackle their health issues, people living with dementia, to give them opportunities to meet with peers and to, and to have stimulation. We also provide hot food. Uh, a lot of people won't, don't get access to hot, hot healthy meals and we have chefs for their hot, hot healthy meals. So you've got 280 people uh, a week coming into these, into these community hubs and wellbeing centres. And then um, within a week, that stops. Now, that, that's two huge challenges for us. First of all, the 280 people are not getting care and that's what we only exist to do is to look after those people. And we are a true social business, so we generate our income from the services we provide. So for us, that meant our income has been cut off overnight, so the challenge was enormous. I can certainly um, imagine just how difficult um, it's been. But what we have seen during this time, interestingly, is a very inspired response, both from the front line and from the population as a whole, haven't we? We've seen so many wonderful stories of people really going above and beyond, whether they've had to continue working on the front line, going into work on sites, whether they've had to adapt to working remotely. They've really pushed the boundaries and gone out of their comfort zones just to keep things ticking over. And even with some of those employees who have been furloughed and can't continue to work, they're engaged aging actively in the community and um, with certain initiatives um, as well. Um, would you say, Anthony, that you've been inspired by what you've seen from those around you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, we had the same problem. Um, I have, we had to furlough many of our staff. But with the staff that we kept on the front line, we adapted our service provision. So because people are now at home, rather than coming to our community hubs, we, we, changed, we flipped the service around and we started providing services at home. So our chefs are cooking and working with volunteers in the local community. We're delivering, last week we delivered 275 meals, hot meals to people in the community. Also, we can't care for people in our centres, but we can talk to them every day. 
So we we, we phone the, the, the people who would have come to our centres and we check they're okay. We make sure they've got what they need. We will organise food deliveries or pick up medicines for them. So we're, we're trying to provide them for care. And what that's done is because of the support of the local council, we've been able to extend that. And we're now, last week, we've made 475 care calls to people in the community doing exactly that, checking it. And the final thing we did, we... Uh, have a telephone befriending service run completely by volunteers and those volunteers stepped up to the mark and we now have extended that and we made uh, over 200 uh, telephone befriending calls last week. So we can't care for people in our centres. So what we did was flip it and care for them in their home and we couldn't do that without volunteers stepping in to make deliveries, to make telephone calls because I'm running on 25% of my staff. Mm, Certainly seems to have been incredibly difficult but it's one means in which people within the sector are innovating isn't it and really sort of uh, branching out and making sure that service can be provided and I think that is one thing even though this has been such an incredibly challenging and difficult time that is a positive to take from this the fact that it's forced the hand of businesses to innovate in various different ways but also the fact that even though we're all working at a distance now it has brought us closer together and really captured a community spirit hasn't it this period of time. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, the support we've got. I mean, it's brought, it's brought the voluntary sector together. I'm, I uh, speak with the local council on um, a group, so at least once a week, two, twice a week at the start of the um, the pandemic, I'm, I'm on telephones, um, Skype calls with other members of the voluntary sector, with the council, and we're making sure that we're working together to achieve what's necessary for the community in Havering at the moment, and that's changing all the time because obviously there's some unprecedented times we started with a whole number of challenges and those challenges are changing and we're having to adapt to those now we're now looking at what happens next and the some of the issues that we'll be facing the people when we lift lockdown the more people will be facing psychological trauma due to having had the disease or many families have the disease people will be affected physically and mentally from this process so we're looking at how do we adapt our service in the future to meet that need which will be new once COVID lockdown is over. It's certainly going to be interesting to see what this new normal is going to look like. And if we think about the long-term effect on the care industry, what do you think, um, Anthony, that's likely to be? And what sort of changes can you see really coming in? Well, the challenges are enormous. I mean, they were enormous before the uh, the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. So challenges are enormous. Um, I, think, um, I think there'll be a response. I think there's a recognition now that... Um, that there are people in our, the old, particularly the older, we've got after old people in the community that they, they need support. And I think that's been highlighted by the fact that the isolation has caused and their vulnerability of individuals. But I think we think we need to have a completely new look at how we tackle these problems going forward. I don't think what we did in the past is right. I think we should change the, the, the model going forward so we create a sustainable model. It's really brought into focus the struggles of the care industry, but also issues such as sustainability in various sectors as well, and this renewed focus on mental health and well-being. And I think it's incredibly important, um, Anthony, that we don't lose sight of that for sure. Um, We talked, of course, about how the response from not only the front line, but also various aspects of UK industry has been incredibly inspiring. Um, But if we just backtrack and look at inspiration as a whole what would you say have been some of the biggest inspirations and indeed influences on you as you've developed through your career and that can also include during this time as well oh um i just had i've had um in my career a number of as i worked through uh, processes i've worked in the food industry 
I worked in food retail and I worked in uh, other sectors before I worked moving to the charity sector. And the inspirational leaders that I had um, were always encouraging, uh, always good decision makers, um, and always uh, did. I always saw they did what was right for the organisation. And sometimes that's hard. And what I've learned as a CEO, you have to make decisions which are tough. But they have, you, if you don't make those decisions and you don't make them quick enough, the organisation that you lead will not have a future at all. And when you're leading a charity like uh, I have, that's been around since 1949, you know, that's a, that's, a, yeah, that's a responsibility. You don't want to be the person in charge when that charity that's been providing services and care to people in, in um, all churches for, since 1949, over 17 years, is you were in charge when it went down. Because also, you have the responsibility of the people it cares for. So what I've learned from leaders is it's about taking decisions, taking this, this, this um, tough decisions and taking those decisions quickly. You can't prevaricate sometimes, particularly like during this COVID crisis. There was no time. It happened so quickly. Decisions have to be taken very, very quickly. And we're having to take tough decisions now going forward. And we're taking those in a timely manner. We're not waiting. We're not hoping that things will get better. We can see where we're going. We have a plan and we are delivering on that plan. So you know, what I've learned is um, from good leaders is make a decision, implement that decision, and then be flexible to change that as you move forward. That's what I've learned. I suppose it's immediate proactivity as opposed to sort of laissez-faire reactivity, isn't it? That idea that once a difficulty arises, get on top of it as soon as possible, dive straight in and deal with the problem, as opposed to just letting things play out for too long and then taking action from that point. I think especially with regards to this, it's incredibly important. And that very criticism, in fact, has been levelled against the UK government for the timing of the lockdown, in fact, especially compared to, say, Italy, for example, where we saw their lockdown begin as early as the 9th of March. We, of course, didn't follow suit until the year the 23rd. So that's interesting yeah. uh, for certain. Um, but also um, as well, um, I think it's important to remember that leadership does come with a great deal of responsibility and having to make difficult decisions such as that. And I think that can be forgotten sometimes because leadership can be associated with a little bit of the glamour of being in the public eye, I think, um, with being associated with politics, with sports, with celebrity. And people forget that it is, in, in fact, a very, very difficult role being a leader, isn't it? Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's, not, there's not a lot of celebrity in running a care service in uh, in Havering, but it's a fantastic it's a fantastic job because you make you know you make um, differences to people's lives every day, and that's and that's why it's, that's why the leadership is hard because what I do has a direct impact on all the people in the community, and people living with dementia, people living with disability, you know, and and if, and if we don't do it right, we don't do it correctly. We, we, you know, you're affecting vulnerable people in the community, and then at the same time, you've got a workforce who are you respect, who are really hard, who are passionate about um, what they do because you don't get paid well for working in the care sector, so they're passionate. And you have to say to them, "I'm sorry, because of what's happened over COVID, I'm going to have no choice but make to make you redundant because we don't have what we did before has changed. Those that part of the business has gone, and this part of the business is a new business." So, they're tough decisions, yeah, and having to have those conversations with people, it's tough for me as CEO, but it's also tough for my management team because they have to have those conversations. So, and, and we're having to have those conversations at the moment, and it's and it's tough. And and but that's I've been a CEO for well, a long time now, um, and you have to make decisions all the time. And and I think what keeps me focused on that is, as I said before, is that 
the leadership I've, led, I've, when I've led and been a CEO, it's always been in the charity sector. So the bottom line for me is the organization exists to help people in the community. So I have to make those decisions, however hard they are, to ensure the organization uh, provides the best service it can to the people in the community. So that, that's what keeps me safe, really, during the process. And do you think that leadership, especially in the charity and care industries, is perhaps as recognised and celebrated as it should be? Um, probably not. I think people have an attitude that the charity sector is to leave it. I think people have come and said, well, I'm leaving interesting to the charity sector because I'm tired and I want an easier life. Well, it, it's not. <laughs> it's very hard work. You're working with very often very limited um, resources financially and using infrastructure often that is a lot poorer than you would have when you're working in um when I was certainly when I was working in retail for people like Marks and Spencers and Waitos, mm. you know, it's it's a very different environment and it's a tough environment. And but what I think drives and you obviously you don't get anything like as well as you would if you were uh, successful in uh, some of them uh, big industries. But I think what drives people is you see on a day to day basis the impact you have um, on people. I can go into our community hubs see what's going on there and, and see the difference we're making every day so that's the driver but it is hard work it certainly um, is um, hard work um, you can see it certainly from um, everything going on um, at the moment um, and also the fact that um, what you're relaying to me uh, now Anthony it seems an incredibly uh, huge task um, ahead of you and if we think about the future now before we do sort of go about wrapping things up on the uh, the program today what do you envision the next 12 to 18 months holding for yourself and for um the business and what do you hope to achieve in that time as a whole at tapestry as we hopefully move through this pandemic emerge from the other side and really do begin to look to the future yes absolutely and that's again it's about this what leadership is about it's about making decisions mm. we started a number of weeks ago planning for what happens post-COVID. Um, we are going to be a very different organization in size and scale than we were when we went into COVID. Um, we're running on 25% of the workforce at the moment. Um, sadly, a number of those that are on furlough have had to be made redundant. Um, we've had to reshape the organization. Uh, but um, on the positive side, we've learned, and what we've learned is that the things that we're giving to the community now, like food at home and the care, daily care calls and the telephone defending, are really important. So we're not what we're not going to do. We're not going to stop those post-COVID. They're going to stay and add them to our service, our service provision going forward. So those that come to our community hubs for the day and have activities and access to food and go to our pub pod and go to the dementia friendly cinema, etc. When they're not with us, we'll always now be talking to them to check that they're okay on a day-to-day basis. If they need food and support at home, we'll continue to do that. One of the things we're having to plan for most importantly now is that the people that we care for, um, 280 odd people who have been in lockdown now for 10, 10, 11 weeks, they desperately need to come back out into the community to spend time with peers and to, uh, you know, just experience life again uh, and access the activities and the care that we provide. So we're working with the council on how do we do that safely as quickly as possible because obviously the more these vulnerable people are locked down, the more you know, the more challenges there are. So we want to we want to say, right, okay, we understand in the post COVID world things are different, but actually, how do we um, in the new world get 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 create safe environments for people to to do the thing that's important to them, spend time with peers, do activities that stimulate health and well being? We've got we've got to do it. So that's exactly what we're working on at the moment. 
Sounds um, incredibly um, exciting uh, for sure, um, Anthony. And let's hope certainly that everything uh, goes uh, well in that sense. And, you know, from a listener's perspective, I think it would actually be fantastic to perhaps have you back on in the next few months as we start to understand the new normal that little bit more and just see how things are going and implementing those changes and how Tapestry as a whole um, is getting on. I think that would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, we'd love to do that. That would be great, yeah, because we've got a huge challenge ahead. Um, but, you know, we're confident we can do it. And I think, you know, in a strange way, we'll emerge with a better service. We've, we've learned a lot from this period, and I think we will, we will we'll have a better service. It'll be great to share with you what we've done. Mm, there will be certainly some positives to come out of this very difficult and very tragic time for sure. Um, in the meantime, um, Anthony, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today and also an incredibly informative experience. And do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on because, of course, we're still not out of the woods um, with this yet and there will be immense challenges to come, as you rightfully say. No, thank you and take care yourself, Scott. That was Anthony Lowe speaking, the CEO and Managing Director of Tapestry Care UK Limited. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, Well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different history and and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and Mm. consent that's required. Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be the prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future 
on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect, where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into 
the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, 
interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, he has, has set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.